Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verses 25 through 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of this land. They told him, We came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of Negeb, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against these people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to Israel an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we had gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are great in size. There we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites come from the Nephilim, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Any thoughtful preacher is going to take real care in preaching from this morning's text. I feel like putting a little warning, flashing light before this. Here's what we need to remember. This Bible story, more than any other Bible story, was the one used by people possessing the land to justify how they took the land and the murderous links they would sometimes go to to keep it. Okay, this is Columbus in 1492, it's Cortez, it's Custer. This is our land, let us go and possess it. You see, once we begin to talk about a land that was inhabited by indigenous people for centuries, once we talk about it as the new world, See, then we become giants in the land and millions of people are treated like grasshoppers. We have to be careful with this, this text. Maybe this will be helpful, make it a little more redemptive for me to tell you that the book of Numbers that Patrick read from this morning, we think that that probably came into being around 721 B.C. And here's the important thing to hear. The people that first heard this story, the Hebrew people at that time, they were landless people. The Assyrians had come sweep, sweeping through their land. Many of them now were in refugee camps. Do you know where this story was first told? It was told in the ghetto, the barrio, okay, the refugee camps. And it was electrifying because the Hebrew people heard, oh yes, we too were meant to be people who have home and have land. Giants and grasshoppers, you're going to hear a lot about that today, talking about insects uh, some years ago. The readers of the Orlando Sentinel awoke on a Sunday morning and they saw this large drawing on the front page. It was a big cockroach standing over and devouring the skyline of Orlando, Florida. The, the article was entitled, The Bug That Took Florida. 
It was a gory, if not glorious, tribute to the oldest um, inhabitant and citizen of Florida, the cockroach. And what they told us in the article is nothing that surprised us, that exterminators, notwithstanding, the cockroach has been here for a million years and will be here a million years from now. The thing that caught my attention, though, was this. Um, they interviewed one of the leading exterminators of Orange County. His name was Paul the Bugman Warren. Paul the Bugman said, you know what I do? I spend every waking hour trying to think like a cockroach. Uh, I say to myself, if you were looking for me, where would I hide? <laughs> Thinking like insects. Hold on to that thought for a minute. Okay. So here, here's what's happened. These people have been wandering for 40 years. Hebrew people. Now, there they are. They're at the threshold right across the river. They can see the land that's been promised to them. They send a recon team out, 12 spies and agents who go across, and they come back with a report. And, and the summary, everyone agrees on the summary. Yes, it's a fine land. It is exactly what we have been told and promised. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a productive area. It's going to be wonderful. However... The land is well-fortified, well-fortified cities, and many of the inhabitants are descendants of Anak. Uh-oh, that doesn't mean anything to you and me, but it struck terror on their hearts. In common vernacular, in today's vernacular, th these were a people that had for centuries lived on a steady diet of human growth hormones. They, large, frightening people and warriors. So, one of the spies and agents goes to the microphone and he makes the majority report. He says, listen, the land is plentiful, milk and honey, but it's inhabited by giants and well-fortified cities. We cannot go forward. Isn't it interesting? You know, uh, they had achieved what Paul the Bugman uh, attempted to do. They were able to think like insects. Maybe the real problem was not the giants in the land as much as the grasshoppers in the mine. Maybe not the circumstances and situations before them as much as the paucity of identity and spirit within them. William Sloan Coffin, on talking about this passage, said, You know, fear distorts, not because it exaggerates the ills of the world, because he said that would be a hard thing to do. No, because it underestimates our capacity to deal with them. Okay. However, I, I want to say this morning, I, I do not want to be too hard on those who gave the majority report. This is what I want us to remember this morning. I mean, these people had spent generations in a refugee camp. They had been slaves. Now, you just think what that's going to do to the human spirit. After a while, you're not seeing life through the lens of plenitude, but scarcity. What do they say? It's easier to get people out of slavery than it is to get the slavery out of people. Oh, yes, God had gotten them on the track. They were free now, and there was this path through the wilderness, but it was not a straight line from A to B. It was zigzag and with backtracks, and it was a journey into um, the uncomfortable zone of stress and delays and detours. And after a while, they were tired. You know, after a while they became like your children, been in the car too long, whining, complaining, aren't we there yet? 
And finally, they're there after all the zigzagging and backtracking and delays and detours. And now they hear this. Oh, well-fortified cities, giants against us. I can understand the pessimism. Now, if Patrick had gone on and read the next chapter, you would find out the next thing that happens is that the Back to Egypt committee has been reactivated. They made a lot of noise during the journey. They were always nipping at the heels of Moses, complaining and whining, and often this was their litany. Why don't we go back? I mean, back in Egypt, we might die in in chains, but at least we got three square meals a day. Now, I don't know a preacher that would tell you after serving a number of years, I think just about any preacher would say, every church is usually going to have at least a little back to Egypt committee. You know, the mission council proposes some new venture of faith and service and outreach, and somebody's going to raise their hand and say, well, I don't know. We haven't been there, haven't done that. A lot of challenges before us, not that many strengths within us. No, somebody needs to do it, but not us. Well, that's not an active committee in this church, thank God. Well, there is a minority report. I heard a senator this year said, you know, the problem about being a part of the minority is you may have an opinion and it may be a really valid viewpoint, but when you're the minority, nobody's listening. When the minority speaks in the Bible, there's going to be an ear for it. Why? Because that's, that's our story. So oftentimes, what, what moves the people of God forward is going to be the saving remnant of people, not the majority. I mean, the church, our story has been written by those people through the years have, have challenged the custodians of the status quo. So we get a minority report. Caleb steps to the microphone, says, you heard the report. I'm not going to disagree with one whit of it. Every bit of it was true. This is what we saw. However, however, he said, we are more, we're more than homeless refugees. We're the people of God, and God is with us. Let us go forward. This is an old story. I think it's still my story. I think it's still our story. Giants in the land. Now, may think about it. Here we are. We're still a pilgrim people, and we're always coming to this moment of threshold. We're right on the other side. There's a promise and possibility God is putting not just before us, but before the world. Think about some of the giants standing before us today. Here we are in the 21st century, and we're called to be purveyors of peace in the world. And looming against us is that giant of global enmity and armament and terrorism. Um, we're called to be a people who struggle for justice for all people. And standing against us is that um, giant greedy consumerism that turns life into a bargain basement scramble. Let me get what I can before you beat me to it. Here we are called to um, be caregivers and caretakers of God's creation. And standing against us is the giant of environmental destruction, abuse of the creation just for the sake of short-term profit. Let me bring it closer to home. How about some of those passions and powers that are nipping at the heels of what God wants for your life? Some of those loom before us like giants. 
How many in this room somewhere along the line have maybe struggled against the giant of um, destructive addictions or devastating disease, debilitating fears? How about that giant passion we seem to have for control in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, always to have the remote control, to be in control? Any of have you stood against any giants lately? Seemed larger than you. The odds are too great, too poor. Here's what happens to us sometimes. We, we don't want to go back because we know what's back there at slavery. We'd like to go ahead. Life is out there. But we find ourselves stuck kind of in what we might call spiritual borderland. Can't go back, can't go forward. But along comes Caleb and says, yes, we can go forward. Wow, that, that's, that story's out there. It wasn't just one time. You, you hear that story and the story. Of the, it, it, it's the impetus of faith. You know, sometimes um, no reservoir can hold it and no disappointment can stifle it. Um, no um, impediment can contain it. It, it can't be waved off. It can't be put off. It, it, it does not accept no for an answer, but it assumes that the answer is yes, even when everyone else suggests that the answer is no. You see. Where did that come from? I mean, where, where did that strength for Caleb to sit there on that day and say, we go forward? I think it has to do with the eyes and so much of faith isn't just what we believe and understand and feel. It's how we see the world. Remember what we said a moment ago, the majority report, that they, they looked at the world through the eyes of insects, of grasshoppers, over against the challenges before them. And some people say, oh, Caleb's just a pipe dreamer. He, he needs a good dose of reality therapy. No, he saw everything that the majority reporters had seen, and he agreed with it. But this is what he holds to. He says, the reality before the eyes is not all there is to see. The observable facts and data do not tell the whole story. Some of you read some of the works of Bob Goff, um, interesting man. And um, he has this friend named Lex. As a young man, well, as a boy, Lex had four operations on his eyes. None of them were successful. By the time Lex was eight, he was completely blind. And Lex became a world-class athlete and runner, runs in the New York-Boston Marathon. Unbelievable as a blind man. He can do it, but he does it. And so he has Lex come and speak to his, um, his class at, at, at the university. Said after the after the lecture, um, they got in the car and he was going to drive Lex back to the training center. And they're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, um, Bob Goff turns on his blinker to make a right-hand turn, and Lex says, "No, it's not this street; it's the next one." Whoa! Bob Goff said, almost swerved off the road. What do you mean, not this street, but the next one? Well, you know, I just kind of like to know where I am. Yeah, how you do that? He said, I've learned a lot of things from Lex. He said, I have plenty of sight, but I use a little of it. Lex has none, and he can see more than 20 optometrists can. 
Well, well, they drive down the road a little farther, and Lex says, you want me to blow your mind? Buddy, you've already blown my mind. There's going to be a speed bump in 30 feet. Here it comes. Bump, bump, bump. This is what Bob Goff said. He said, for years I've heard that phrase, blind faith, but I've never understood it till I got to know Lex. This is the man who is always saying, it's not what you look at. It's what you see. I'll repeat that. It's not what you look at. It's what you see. Everybody was looking at the same thing, the same set of situations, circumstances, and facts. But old Caleb and Joshua come along, and they see something more. What, what, what did they see? D didn't they see that long testimony of what the uh, centuries say to the years about the undying purposes of God, how God continues to work out his purposes through people like us who make themselves available, people like us who live from the inside out. But maybe most of all, you see, what Caleb could see was the undying presence of God. He said, look, God had been with us when we were in the refugee camp, and God was with us when we were wandering in the wilderness and getting manna that was falling at our feet every day. And God was with us when uh, our days of breakthroughs and our days of breakdown. He was with us when we were finding and when we were losing, and he will be with us now. In the Anglican Episcopal Common Book of Prayer, there is a prayer that begins like this. The God of all comfort. Wow, we have taken that word comfort and we have made it maudlin and weak. We talk about having a comforter, you know, something that's kind of cushy and soft. Do you know the meaning of the word comfort? I'm going to tell you whether none of you are shaking. I'm going to tell you the meaning of the word. It comes from two Latin words, comfortus. It means to fortify, to strengthen, to actually give courage, the comfort, the God of all comfort, the one who gives us that which we most lack when we most need it, the God who strengthens those who seem to be outmaneuvered, outnumbered, and overpowered. And um, Martin Luther King's, he had a discourse on nonviolence, and he said something really interesting in this. He wrote this. He said, a lot of people don't know, but for years, I thought God was just an interesting topic to engage in in theological debates. No more, he said. Now, in, in the journey I've been on, I have found God um, being a power that has taken my despair and uh, taking my tiredness and turning it into the buoyancy of hope. He said, I am convinced that the universe is under the control of a loving purpose and that those who struggle for righteousness, listen to this, he says, they will find themselves surrounded by a cosmic companionship. Don't you love that? Cosmic companionship. I think Caleb knew about that got there to the threshold of, do we go back, do we go forward? He remembered that. That's a good thing for us to remember. 
when the challenges look too big and the odds too poor and the situation too hopeless. Do I know any other Caleb's? Oh, yeah. Right here in this church, friends of mine. I think John Wesley was one. You know, group of us went on this heritage tour. And we went to uh, Wesley's apartment, City Road, London. It's, it's a very humble place. It's just kind of a, a small apartment, three or four stories just stacked on each other. Most of the rooms were pretty small. Before we went into the apartment, I told our group, we had a little time of devotion, and I said, when you go in there, you're going to see some things you want to pause before. You might even almost want to take off your shoes. The ground is going to become sacred kind of ground. I said, you're going to see the, his, his study, and you're going to see the table he wrote on, which really became an author's workbench. And you're going to see his prayer chair where he spent hours. But I said, the thing I want you to really look at is in his bedroom, there's not going to be a lot of things in the room, very few pictures but right by the bed there's going to be a pair of shoes black leather buckled shoes and they're going to be worn out and those shoes tell the Wesley legacy the story of this man that kept putting his feet in those shoes and those shoes they kept moving kept going time and time again John Wesley would come to these threshold moments am I going to go back am I going to go forward will I be stuck here and he kept turning and saying get up go on keep moving now for him the promised land that was out in front of him was reviving the church of England oh my goodness you talk about giants in the land we're talking about 18th century religion in England, it had become um, lethargic. It had become lukewarm. It was long on form and function and formality and was lacking in a warm-hearted enthusiasm and grace. But maybe the greatest thing working against any kind of revival was so many of the common people of England had been disassociated from the church. Um, they didn't find a place of welcome there. We're talking about miners. We're talking about people that worked in the sweatshops and the servants. So here he is trying to revive a church. And there were so many giants in the land. And Wesley knew if this church is going to be revived, you can't do things the same old way. And he went against probably the majority opinion in his own mind. He said, I'm going to do something that is a high Anglican I really don't want to do. I'm going to follow George Whitfield out into the streets and into the slums and into the mines, and I'm going to take church to people that won't come to church anymore. He wrote in his journal, he said, Today I submitted to do that which was vile. Now, we hear that word vile. We think nasty, naughty. No. But he said vile. He meant uncommon. He meant against the grain, maybe even his own grain. It was the grain of the day. And he said at 2.30 on, this after, on the afternoon of the 24th of June, I went out to Kingswood and as the miners were coming out of the mine, their faces covered with soot, I preached and there were 4,000 people there. 4,000. 
Well, now as he began to move ahead, he continued to tell his followers, keep going to the nearest Anglican church and receive the Eucharist. But they formed these meeting houses that became respite areas for, for food and for medicine and for education. Now he's facing a new giant. It's the opposition of the authorities of the Anglican church. When they would hear that the Wesleys and the movement would be in town, they would often hire thugs to come out and shout and throw stones. John Wesley had two words of advice for his preachers that went out like him. He said, be sure you find a field that is lacking in stone and always look a mob in the face. Time and time again, he came to the threshold. He could have gone back, but he kept going forward, forever growing, changing, going. He put his feet in those shoes, and he walked and traveled by horseback over 250,000 miles, went to Ireland 42 times. Over 50 years, he averaged 800 sermons a year. At the age of 85, he preached 80 sermons in an eight-day period. Okay. So where did that come from? That strength to get up, go on, keep moving. I have the answer. I think I have the answer. And we stood there in his bedroom, our little group here from Central. We heard again the story that it was there that um, he drew his last breath. It's a very simple room. It's about the size of maybe a guest room at your house. And he was surrounded by some of his friends. He tried to sing a couple of verses of an Isaac Watts hymn. He started the hymn and he couldn't finish it. And then he said his last words. He said, the best, the best of what is, is that God is with us. The best of what is, is that God is with us. Do you hear Caleb in that? In season, out of season, in freedom, in slavery, through it all, God is with us. Cosmic companionship. Oh, so here we are. I mean, as a church, we're always coming to the threshold. There's some promise of land looming before us, maybe individually. You're, you're looking at some giant out before you. Go for it. Go for it, okay? Because to go back, there's just slavery there. Forward, there's life. Go for it. Not because you're smart or gifted, though many of you are. No, just go for it, because God is with us.